Thanks for tuning in. One of the things that makes a show like Outcasting possible is financial support from listeners like you. Please visit us at mfpg.org and click on support to make your tax-deductible contribution. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. When you're thinking about non-binary gender, you don't have a male or a female, you have a mix. And it's different for every person. It's not something that you can just point at and say, oh, this is non-binary. And I think that that's confusing for a lot of people. When you can't see something straight out in front of you and you have to, you know, conceptualize it more than visualize it, it takes time for people to, to understand. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, a listener-supported independent producer based in New York, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Callie. On this edition of Outcasting, Outcaster Alex speaks with fellow Outcaster Jamie about gender identities that don't fall into the most familiar categories of male and female, identities that can be called non-binary. Jamie identifies as non-binary and uses they-them pronouns. In this conversation, Jamie talks about their struggles discovering their sexuality and gender. Jamie, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So how long have you been an outcaster? Uh, I've been an outcaster for around four years. And how do you identify? I identify as non-binary and pansexual. Non-binary for me, meaning that I don't fit into a binary male or female kind of box. I kind of combine a little bit of both. And pansexual is meaning that I'm, my sexual attractions are not based on any sort of gender, sexuality, anything like that. So I can be attracted to anyone. What are your preferred pronouns? My preferred pronouns are they, them. And I use they, them pronouns because they aren't associated with a male or female binary, but they're also already part of the English language. I don't think I'd ever be comfortable with the pronoun like Z. Um, so they, them was the, the most comfortable thing that I found. So when did you first start questioning your gender and sexuality? I started questioning my gender before I started questioning my sexuality. I was around two years old when I started questioning my gender. I don't remember the story, but my mother told it to me. I was very young and I ran up to her and I was crying and she asked me what was wrong. And I said, Mommy, I'm a boy. I don't really know why I thought I was a boy, but that's just how it happened. And I guess from then on, I knew something was, you know, not... Normal is not the word I want to use, but just not typical. And then I started questioning my sexuality when I was around 13. I had met a girl in camp that I had a crush on, and I had never experienced a crush at any point before that. So I automatically just assumed that I was a lesbian. And that's not how I identify now, but that was my first experience with sexuality. How are these two realizations different from each other? The two realizations were different from each other because my sexuality realization was experience-based and my gender definitely wasn't. I think that my awareness of my gender identity and how I'm not cisgendered evolved over time. It wasn't something that just hit me. I think with more education, I 
discovered what was comfortable and what I really, what I really am. As a child, your mother and father got divorced. How did that affect your upbringing? Um, when my mother and father divorced, I was around two and a half, three years old. Um, we were living in Massachusetts, and my mother and my sister and I moved to New York. And we weren't really living alone at any point because my mom had met another woman named Danielle. They weren't romantically involved at all at that point. They were just friends. But Danielle was coincidentally moving out of her New York apartment. So uh, she moved in with us, and then they kind of just always stayed together, ended up falling in love. And I grew up with Danielle as mom number two. Did your mother have a coming out moment with you where she told you about her relationship with Danielle? Or was it more natural and free-flowing? To be completely honest, I don't remember if she ever outright told me about her relationship with Danielle or if Danielle just started living with us and it never needed to be explained. I have a feeling it's the second option just because Danielle took on a parenting role that she wasn't expecting to take on. And it just stuck. I don't think as a young child I ever needed an explanation. I kind of just assumed that she was there and that's what she was. So in your childhood, you viewed Danielle as a sort of second mother. I think that Danielle living with me, uh, she, she developed a parental role, but I never connected to her as a mother. I think that's why, you know, I have my mom and I have Danielle. She doesn't have like a, a mama or a mommy or a another word like that because that connection wasn't there. And I don't know if that was because I was past the point of seeing her maternally. I don't know. I might have just been an odd three-year-old. My sister connected with her a lot more. And like my sister calls her Deedum as this, you know, motherly nickname. So yeah, I think I think that my connection with her is interesting. And I don't really know why it developed the way it did. I just know that it's not it's not maternal, but it's protective. And I, I obviously see her as part of the family. How has your relationship been with your father? Awesome. He, he's my rock. I absolutely love him to bits. We're basically the same person. And I think that's been very helpful because uh, my, my mother and my father didn't have a bad divorce. It was basically just a situation where they initially had decided to get married because they were, you know, getting older and they wanted to have kids, but weren't, you know, so romantically connected. And they realized after having my sister and I, like, you know what, this isn't going to work. Like, I'm happy we had kids. We'll still stay connected whenever, but this is not going to be a marriage. So, you know, they're still friends today. I saw him all the time. It's great that I still get to have him in my life and as such an important part of my life. Has growing up with Gina and Danielle being LGBTQ and such a large part of your life, of course, has that helped you come to your realization of being an LGBTQ person? I'd imagine subconsciously it definitely helped. Having two lesbian parents normalizes the idea of someone being in a same-sex relationship. So as a child, I never saw anything different between them and other parents. That probably did help me out a lot with my acceptance of myself and also my my birth mother, I guess I could call her, uh, <laughs> um, Gina. She is very proud of who she is. She calls herself a lipstick lesbian, and she's very proud of being this 
feminine lesbian and open about it and just being an open advocate. I think that that was definitely very helpful for me. I don't think that I ever acknowledged it at my times of coming out like, oh, wow, my parents are really something that pushed me to be more comfortable with myself. I think that was a lot of me and being with outcasting and just educating myself. Did any difficulties arise from your parents being a gay couple? I think that there were a lot of microaggressions that happened just because I had two mothers. A lot of the time, we'd be seated by a bathroom in a restaurant or just seated in a in an unappealing area, which is, you know, not something you usually think about unless it happens all the time. And there was, I think, like one incident with my middle school principal where my mother was treated differently after they learned that she had a wife. But there really wasn't any outright issue with them being who they are. And I think that's also because, you know, we uh, we live in New York. And anywhere in New York, close to New York City, is pretty liberal. So I guess in this area, you don't expect too much discrimination, which is a privilege that I think should definitely be acknowledged. Did that make your coming out harder in any ways? I think that when I initially had a crush on a girl, my first instinct, because I had two lesbian moms, was just, oh, I'm a lesbian. And there was no other option. That was it. That's all I am, um, because that's all I knew. So that was just it. I was like, I'm going to come out to everybody. I'm going to be proud and open and just tell the whole world about how I'm a lesbian and I have lesbian moms and everything's great. But when I came out to my mothers, I didn't get the kind of approval that I wanted, or not that I wanted, but that I needed. It was more of a, yay, we have a lesbian, instead of a, we're, we love you, we support you kind of thing. And they probably didn't think that they needed that because it, it was just assumed that, you know, we love you, we're lesbians, we're not going to discriminate against our lesbian daughter. But it's just not what I needed, and I think that 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 experience made me very insecure in how I'd come out and who I was as a person. And I kept questioning my sexuality after that, not just because of them, but because what I was identifying as is not who I am. Every time I've had to tell them anything about my gender or my sexuality after that initial coming out experience, it's been less and less open support and more of just an okay so what do we do now? And, you know, that that's not a very comforting thing to hear as someone who's, you know, every coming out experience is a scary experience no matter how many times you've done it. So when, you know, I came out as pansexual to my parents, they kind of just asked me, oh, what's that? And then once I explained that to them, they were like, okay, and we're going to move on. I think that the the lack of support made me just not, not confident in anything that I was doing concerning my gender or sexuality. And they still don't use my pronouns that I prefer. And it's more of just an, okay, you have a label, this is what you are, whatever. I don't need to put any effort into this because it's all about you and it has nothing to do with me kind of experience. Why do you think it is that Gina and Danielle, even though they are a gay couple, 
have trouble supporting you and your gender? I don't know if it's a a generation gap or just a too much information being thrown at them at once. I talk a lot about outcasting because it, it it's a very big thing in my life. It's a it's important to me. It's helped me grow as a person, and you know all of this new information that they didn't know about before, things that they didn't know existed, things that they didn't know were issues in the world. They're they're being educated and. It might just be a lot for them to try and conceptualize. I think another thing is that they are cisgendered women. Thinking about any kind of gender variance is something that I'd imagine a um, a cisgender person might be very confused by. And, you know, no matter how many analogies you might try to throw at someone, there's only so much you can do to try and get it into them until they have something that clicks for them in their own way. So I I do think that one day my mothers will understand who I am and realize why my pronouns are important. But at this point, I think I've done all I can do at this moment. And I have to let them, I guess, experience other people. I think maybe when I go to college, they meet my college friends and my college friends use my pronouns. That's when it'll kind of hit them that that is the life that I'm living because I'm living as myself, and they'll adapt. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program produced by Media for the Public Good in New York, online at outcastingmedia.org. On this edition, Outcaster Alex is talking with fellow Outcaster Jamie about their sexuality and gender. We've been talking a lot about your parents' behavior in relation to your pronouns throughout your coming out experience. How has your father been in terms of supporting your identity? I tried explaining my gender to my father once, and only once, because he not only didn't understand it, but became very defensive toward it. I think that my father has a very, holds masculinity as something very near and dear to him. So anything that threatens his his perception of gender is a threatening idea to him. Like, he he won't even accept the fact that, like, if he in, enjoys, a like, a girly movie, like, that that's something he can't do because he's a man and men don't do that. So gender variance is not something that he accepts, understands, or wants to understand. And he hasn't outwardly discriminated against me, but he has basically made it very clear that that's not going to be an open conversation right now. Sexuality-wise, he's more open. I think that that's something that is more familiar to him because, you know, his ex-wife is a lesbian. So it, it, it just makes a little bit more sense that there can be that kind of thing. So, yeah, I think that's where he's at, which is unfortunate. So just how your mom uh, has that lipstick lesbianism, that uh, strong feminine sense, your dad also, on the entirely other scale, has a very masculine outset on his life and kind of his fatherly sense of your life. Mm-hmm. He doesn't realize it, but he's not as masculine as he wants to be. And I, I kind of, I, I poke fun at him sometimes because I, I know that it pushes his buttons to, you know, test his defenses on that. Like, you know, you're allowed to like baking if you want to. It's really okay. 
you're allowed to want to, you know, do other stereotypically feminine things. And he doesn't notice that he's doing that. And I'm like, oh, there it is. You're doing something. <laughs> I always try to push my parents to realize their own disadvantage when it comes to the way that they perceive the world. And in turn, it helps out with them understanding me. How has that very distinct difference between your father's like American masculinity and your mother's um, lipstick lesbianism, how has that affected your, your gender identity? I think I'm, it's made it very clear that I'm non-binary because I, I definitely don't fit into either of those boxes. You know, I have a little bit of my mother in me and a little bit of my dad, just like every other child, but also in the gender sense. I think the way that I perceive femininity and masculinity is very clear because of them. And I've never felt like I belonged to either one of those boxes between them. As I said before, my dad and I are very similar people. But that's the thing. Like, gender is the thing that stops us from being similar. And the way that he perceives life and gender working together are just something that I do not agree with. And the same with my mother. I think it's ridiculous that both of them are on complete polar opposite scales because I could never see myself as someone who wears makeup every day and someone who is feminine and proud, but same on the masculine side. I I just would never see myself doing that or be comfortable in that kind of skin. And maybe that is what helped me determine that I'm non-binary because I don't want to be either of those things and I can't imagine myself as either of those things. And I... I'm, I'm a happy neutral. I know that your sister Lindsay is the only straight person in your household. What role does she play in your family? I think Lindsay plays a very interesting role in our family. I think my mother takes a lot of pride in the fact that she has, you know, like a, a little straight girl in her house, which I think is hilarious. How does she feel about your identity? Lindsay doesn't really understand my identity very similar to my parents. She tries and doesn't really succeed. And so when she talks to other people about me, she says that, I think she says that either I'm gender fluid or that I'm non-binary. Uh, gender fluid is a, a, a term that I used before I became comfortable with non-binary. And, you know, she tries her best, but the the general excuse for my whole family is that I've grown up and used she, her pronouns, and they just can't figure out how to adapt to they, them. And, you know, while that doesn't make them bad people, I do think that you should try a little bit harder for your child or for your sibling so that they can be comfortable. Although, you know, no matter what Lindsay does, Lindsay and I are extremely close. She's only a year and a half younger than me. We've lived in the same room for all of our lives. We accidentally wear the same clothes at some points and without ever seeing each other we'll just walk downstairs in the morning and oh we're wearing the exact same thing and we support each other we're symbiotic relationships so <laughs> no matter what she's she does she will always be my sister and just like my parents no matter what they do they will always be my parents but I think my relationship would grow even stronger with all three of those people if they were using my pronouns and trying to advocate for me. I really want to acknowledge the fact that even though my parents and my sister don't always use the right pronouns with me or 
understand who I am at this point. They're still good people. One fault in a person does not make them a bad person. And that's that that's something that's very important to say. You can't demonize someone for for doing that. You know, I think that as long as you're putting effort into trying to support someone or trying to fix your mistakes, that's what makes you a good person. The only reason I would say that my parents were bad people was if they didn't treat me right. And they do. They're wonderful people. They're amazing parents. My sister is also just fantastic. I I really couldn't ask for anything better. So I want to make that clear. But there's always a chance to go up. There's always a chance to be better and improve as a person, improve with supporting your child or supporting your sibling. Why do you think it is that so many people have difficulty understanding non-binary senses of gender rather than people who can very easily understand gay couples? I think it's a lot easier to think in the binary uh, when you're thinking of black and white as male and female. So even if you're thinking about a trans person, that person could have been born as male and then is making a female switch and or someone who was born female is making the male switch. And it's two concrete boxes that you can go into. But when you're thinking about non-binary gender, those two boxes don't exist. You don't have a male or a female. You have a mix. And it's different for every person. It's not something that you can just point at and say, oh, this is non-binary. And I think that that's confusing for a lot of people. When you can't see something straight out in front of you and you have to, you know, conceptualize it more than visualize it, I think that it takes time for people to to understand. Do you think that the very polarized gender outlook of America, particularly like women being sexualized and men being sexualized and the social things we associate with those two, do you think that contributes to this feeling? Absolutely. I think that the social implications of what it means to be a man or a woman are very important in people's confusion when they're trying to understand gender identity. When you see a woman, most of the time people think of feminine things, so dresses, makeup, heels, long hair, that's, you know, the the picture-perfect image of a woman in most people's minds. That, that That's what a woman is. And a male is the opposite. You know, pants, nice shoes, short hair, that kind of thing is a man. So then when you're thinking about a non-binary person, there's nothing to see. There, there's no, you don't know how to mix and match those different pieces of femininity and masculinity. How much do you feel this polarization in your daily life, being a non-binary person? I have short hair, and I'm also a feminine-bodied person. So especially working with children, because I'm, I'm a music teacher at a camp, I get a lot of questions about my hair. Why is my hair the way it is? Uh, why do I dress the way I dress and stuff like that? And I say it's because that's how I feel most comfortable but a lot of the time how kids perceive it and how adults perceive it too and they don't really want to think about it is that, you know, short hair is for men. 
unless it's a pixie cut, it's meant for a man. And that visual distinction between male and female is something that's very hard. No one is ever going to assume that my pronouns are they, them, because no one wants to offend. I mean, I, I've, I've never been misgendered using he, him pronouns. I don't think I'm a particularly masculine looking person. Um, but being called she, she pronouns and not necessarily looking super she, but also, you know, who knows? I don't want to offend anyone, so I'm just going to use she. It's very degrading after a long time, especially working with adults that I know could handle it. But in the atmosphere that I'm working in or the atmosphere that I'm living in, that's not something that's possible at that moment. Do you find that you often have to be more feminine around people who may not accept your non-binary gender? I try on purpose to not be very feminine around people that don't accept me. Because I think making people uncomfortable is something that a lot of people are scared of doing, but it's how you get things done. I look very feminine, and if I decide to act on feminine stereotypes and present myself in a more feminine way, that's completely defeating the purpose. So if I, you know, act more stereotypically masculine, if I carry myself in a different way, uh, if I, you know, hang out with the boys or, you, you know, that kind of stuff, that's what makes people uncomfortable and that's what makes people think and that's how things get changed. Do you have any advice for LGBTQ teens like yourself who are considering changing their gender and sexual identity? I would say not to rush into it. Stereotypically, when someone identifies as bisexual, a lot of the time what happens is people say, oh, it's just a phase. It's not necessarily a phase. Sometimes it is for some people. Sometimes it's a stepping stone. Sometimes it isn't. And don't push yourself to identify as something you're not 100% sure about because there's no rush on putting a label on anything. You never have to put a label on anything because you're you and that's it. Just do that and make sure you educate yourself on LGBTQ everything, because that's so important to find a community for yourself. The internet exists. There are many beautiful things on the internet. So, you know, just find people that you mesh with, find identities that you mesh with, and just go for it. And finally, do you have any advice for parents of LGBTQ children? Be patient. There are a lot of things that might be new for you. There are a lot of things that you may think didn't exist before or might not be possible, whatever. Don't bind yourself to the thoughts that you had before. Let your child go through their own process and constantly support them. Because the only thing you're going to do by not supporting them is hurt them. And that's never anything you want to do to a child. All right, I think that's a good place to wrap up. Jamie, thanks so much for joining us and sharing your story. Thank you for having me. Outcaster Jamie graduated from high school in 2017 and is now in college pursuing music education. That's it for this edition of Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. This program has been produced by the Outcasting team, including youth participants Alex, Becca, Ari, Samantha, Andrea, Stephen, 
Max, Quinn, Druve, Nicio, Lauren, Dante, Lucas, Jamie, and me, Callie. Our assistant producers are Alex Mintz and Josh Valley, and our executive producer is Mark Sofus. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, a listener-supported independent producer based in New York. More information about Outcasting is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting episodes, and the podcast link. Outcasting is also on social media. Connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or at school or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386 or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. They even have an online chat you can use if you don't want to talk on the phone. Again, the number is 866-488-7386. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. I'll say it one more time. 866-488-7386 or online at thetrevorproject.org. You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org, under Outcasting LGBTQ Resources. I'm Callie. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make a tax-deductible gift to Media for the Public Good. We can't do programs like this without your support. Visit mfpg.org and click on Support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.